All themes that are common in, in other Old Testament books, none of them are here in what seems like a very godless book. And that's why the inspiration of the book of Esther and its inclusion in scripture has been questioned by some. Even Martin Luther wasn't quite sure because of this. But nevertheless, it's ultimately and finally been recognized as scripture by the Jews and by the Christian church today. And that's because we understand that the absence of God in this story is actually a very intentional literary device. In fact, it's really the, the genius of this book. Because first of all, it demonstrates how the Jews in Jerusalem were feeling at this time. Wondering where was God? What was God up to in the godless world they were living in? Where again, even after returning from exile, they were facing this opposition. What better way to, to communicate those questions than to leave God out of the story? That's how they felt. However, it also demonstrates how the Jews who had remained in Persia were living. They were living without any recognition of God. Even when their nation's very existence would come under threat, they remained godless. As the story will tell, none of the Jewish protagonists ever look to God. And yet the most significant reason that the author never mentions God explicitly in the book is to magnify the undeniable presence and providence of God that is implicit in the story everywhere. As we'll see over the next nine weeks, the story records one coincidence after another. The right people in the right place at the right time doing just the right thing to rescue the Jews. So much so that the only reasonable explanation is that these things are not mere coincidences, but clearly the hand of Israel's covenant-keeping God, who, while seemingly absent, is undoubtedly working behind the scenes, just as he did in, in all of Israel's history, in all of the Old Testament. Again, moving forward his purposes and fulfilling his promises for them. I like how one commentator puts it. The story of Esther reaffirms that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. And this makes the story so helpful to God's people in every age. Because if we're honest, as we go about our ordinary everyday lives without any extraordinary revelations of God, on the surface, it often appears like he is absent in our lives. Especially when we consider the godlessness so present in our world. We look around again and we think, is God even there? And what could God possibly be up to in all of this? Well, the book of Esther answers those questions with a resounding yes. God is there. But... It will require eyes of faith to see him, to rightly interpret all the coincidences in our lives and in our world as not the product of chance, but as the providence of God, who continues today in our lives and our world to work behind the scenes to move forward his purposes and fulfill his promises to God's people, to you and me. 
Though God is absent from the pages of Esther, clearly God is there. And the book's been written in such a way so that when God seems absent in our lives, when we can't see God in our godless world, we too can know just the same God is there. Now, in the first chapter of the book that we're going to be looking at this morning, this message of God's hidden presence and providence starts to unfold as we're brought into the center of pagan power. We're going to see here the the overwhelming wealth, the alarming immorality, and the distressing dominance of a godless king who ruled over the Jews. But with eyes of faith, we will also see that when God's people might fear the powers of this godless world, God is right there. And the first scene of this chapter begins with the expression of a godless king's power over his people in verses 1 to 9. Like every great story in the the book of Esther is regarded as a story par excellence. The, The author begins by introducing the time, the place, and some of the main characters. He starts off by saying, now in the days of Ahasuerus... And he does that by following, uh, interestingly here, uh, a Hebrew formula that's common in the Old Testament history books. Uh, We see this very way uh, in Joshua and Judges, for example, starting like that, which indicates this isn't just a story. This is recorded history. And all the eyewitness details in the book of people and places and conversations and customs confirm it. In fact, uh, I got Darla, our office administrator, to tell uh, Dennis and Brian, who were reading scripture, I said, you know, make sure they have time and they practice, because did you notice all of the names? By the way, good, good job, Dennis, with those names. Why all the names? It shows us that the person who wrote this, the inspired author, was there. This happened. This is history. These are real people in real places. It's a true story that we're told took place when Ahasuerus reigned over the Persian Empire. It says from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, and that included Judea. So we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jewish homeland. Ahasuerus governed over the Jews for his 21 years in power from 485 to 465 BC. Now, Ahasuerus was also known by his Greek name Xerxes, And maybe some of your translations would even have that, though the Hebrew would be this way. And uh, he was the son of Darius the Great, who you might remember from Daniel in chapters 5 and 6. And he was the father of Artaxerxes, who we meet in Ezra 7 to 10. And as the impressive description of verse 1 suggests, this godless king who reigned over God's people at this time was the greatest king of the ancient Near East. In fact, an ancient inscription discovered from this time period on a foundation stone from the massive uh, palace complex uh, in Susa declares, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries, which speaks all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth, the son of King Darius. Well, as the chapter goes on, we see this was no exaggeration. He truly was the greatest king of the time. 
Verse two, we read, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, the capital of Susa was one of four capitals in the Persian Empire, and there was a royal palace that Darius had built for their winter months, and it's the same citadel of Susa here that we see in Daniel 8. And according to archaeological excavations, this was a massive complex, 10 acres in size, the palace proper being 350 feet square with 72 stone columns between 60 to 80 feet tall. And it was here that Ahasuerus, in the third year of his reign, which would be 483 BC, gathered together over 180 days all of his top political and military officials for a great feast with their king. And by the way, feasts, banquets play a big role in this story. There's two big feasts at the beginning, at the middle, and the end. So take note of that as we continue on. Now, although we know from other history that Persian kings like to party, sometimes their feasts would have up to 15,000 guests, this lavish, long-lasting feast was almost certainly a shrewd political move by Ahasuerus, meant to consolidate his authority over the empire and confirm the loyalty of his officials. See, at the time, Persia was at war with Greece, And according to the ancient historian Herodotus, this was the very year that a great war council was held to plan an all-out invasion. And therefore, many have compared this feast to something like the military parades and, and national celebrations. You've probably seen footage of Nazi Germany that Hitler cunningly used to unite his officials and citizens under his maniacal war effort. Or it would be similar to those massive May Day parades in the former Soviet Union that Stalin and those after him used to unite the party and the nation under their imperialistic goals. In these verses, as we read them, we're meant to similarly feel and fear this king's awesome military might, which is a sobering reminder of what this godless world can muster. But that's not all. As the chapter goes on to express the king's mammoth monetary power as well in verse 5 and 7, we read of a second feast. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. As we read in verse 6 and 7, this was a lavish palace showing his great wealth. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. After 180 days of serving the king's guests, the palace servants were rewarded with their own feast. It was just a little one, seven days. But the author records it nonetheless. And notice, 
He records it with great detail. In fact, it is an unusually elaborate description of a palace. There's nothing else like this in the Old Testament, except for when the Old Testament authors describe the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Very similar ways of describing these things. Now, this certainly makes the point that Ahasuerus' wealth was beyond imagination. Uh, he was a force to be reckoned with, not only militarily, but also monetarily. But even more so, it made the point, this, this very um, long description, it made the point to the original Jewish readers that by all external appearances, this king rivaled the king of kings. The grandeur of his house rivaled and was akin to the grandeur of the Lord's house. Which should have us wondering, considering how often we might look at the power and prosperity of the godless world we live in with the same awe, the same wonderment, the same fear that we have for God, maybe even more so. Maybe we're more taken aback by all of the power and wealth of this world to a much greater extent than we are at the infinite power of God. Look at the military power of dictators. Look at the limitless wealth of the elites. Look at how great these forces and finances that are perpetuating so much evil in our world. Look at how the godless are pushing their agenda with ease. It's almost godlike. And it makes many wonder, where is God in all of this? What's God up to? Now, to further emphasize this godless king's seemingly godlike power, the author, with a first hint of humor, and by the way, the book of Esther is loaded with humor, it points out that Ahasuerus had so much control over the people of his empire that he had to make an official edict for the open bar at his feast. Verse 8 says, And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. <laughs> One writer remarks, it's hard not to smirk a little at the micromanaging megalomania of a king who needs to legislate for how his people drink at his parties. Which, by the way, is exactly what the author of the book is aiming at. Ahasuerus wants us to bow before him in awe and reverence. He wants to be adored by his subjects and feared by his enemies and obeyed by everyone. He wants total control. Which is frightening. Then and now. Godless people like him with God-like power. But though that's where the first chapter begins, that's not where it ends. While the king was throwing his own politically motivated, power-hungry party, we read in verse 9 that Queen Vashti was throwing her own party for the women in the palace. And it's with her introduction that the chapter starts to take a turn. 
satirically exposing now the emptiness of a godless king's power over his people in verses 10 to 22. We're told that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he had a drunken brainwave. Having already shown off his military and monetary power, parading his war machine and wealth before all the peoples and princes of the empire, why not cap it off by parading my trophy wife in front of them too, so that all the men can see I have it all. Now, it's interesting. We know, again, from extra-biblical history that the Persians, curiously, were, made, were known for making important political discussions while drunk and then defending them when sober. Sometimes I wonder if that's the same way political decisions are made today. But this intoxicated idea this time did not work out like that. Because it turned out there was one person in Ahasuerus' empire who was willing to put her foot down and refuse him if need be. When the king's eunuchs, his castrated caretakers of the harem, were sent to fetch Queen Vashti, she refused to come. After all, it would be humiliating and degrading, immoral, since dignified Persian women would rarely, if ever, even show themselves to men. And it's with that one act of disobedience that the king's grand pretense of power was exposed. Despite his, his great reign and his grand riches, mighty Ahasuerus couldn't control his own wife. The first of many ironies in the remaining verses in the whole humor-filled book. And this enraged him. It says in verse 12, his anger burned with him. The usual response when despots are disobeyed. But ironically, he didn't know what to do with him. He was mad as anything, but he's like, I don't know what to do with my wife. And so in verse 13 to 15, he goes to his wise men for marriage advice. Really what he does is he goes to his lawyers to see if they might know how to control the queen, which is meant to be funny. But as we see in the remainder of the chapter, verses 16 to 22, they're just as inept as he was. They have no clue how to handle the situation. In fact, their advice just makes everything worse. Fearful, it says in verse 7, that the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. These geniuses counsel, first of all, that he does not divorce Vashti, but ban her from the king's court, and then give her royal position to another, verse 19, who is better than she. And, and this, of course, sets the stage for Esther's appearance in the next chapter, but, but we're not there yet. That's, that's getting ahead of ourselves. What's most important here is at the end of the chapter and the decree that the king makes at their advice. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, church, do you see how completely ridiculous this is? How absurd the king's decree. First, who does he think he is that he can control all the wives of the empire? Really? 
Good luck with that. He might be able to order his officials around and manage his military and his money, but only a fool would try to micromanage marriages. But secondly, and more significantly, this decree is completely ridiculous because ironically, it ensured that women everywhere across the whole empire, do you notice those last verses, in all the languages everywhere, that they would actually find out about what Vashti did, the very thing they were trying to avoid. Because the decree went out to be like, hey, so did you hear about how Vashti disobeyed the king? (laughs) Well, now you better obey your husbands. Oh, that backfired. And finally, the king's decree is ridiculous because he literally orders other men's wives to do what his wife refused to do. He orders men to manage their homes when he can't even manage his own. And this humorously and helpfully reveals to the readers then and now the complete emptiness of his power and all of the presumed power of this godless world. And that's what this chapter is all about, exposing the mirage of men's might. which should then make it clear to God's people where the real power resides. Listen, this story's satirical expose of the emptiness of this godless king's power, it's meant to finally elicit in those who know the bigger story of scripture, the expectation of God's power and his good purposes for his people. Look how ridiculous these rulers are. See the utter impotence of these influencers. Consider how comical their pretense of power is, the not-so-greatness of these great godless people who think they can manipulate the world but can't even manage their own homes. It's a theme that's going to run through the entire book of Esther. Mighty men in the world who oppose God's purposes and oppress God's people, exposed for who they truly are. Puny men who can do nothing to stop the purposes and promises of Almighty God. As we heard earlier in Psalm 2, 2 to 4, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And so though there is no mention of the Lord in this first chapter, With the eyes of faith trained by Psalm 2 and other scriptures, we can start to see his hidden presence and providence and power. We understand that this expose of King Ahasuerus is just one example among many in world history where God holds the godless in derision and makes a spectacle of them, proving who's really in charge, revealing his sovereign work behind scenes. I mean, just think about in the past hundred years, how so many of these great, powerful, evil men in history have been in the end exposed to be nothing. Like fearsome Hitler, defeated and found dead in his suicide in his bunker, pathetic, nothing in the end. Or the despotic dictator of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, who, if you've ever seen this footage from the 80s or 90s, and giving this great speech with his mighty palace, and people finally had enough, and they start throwing stuff at him, and before they know it, he's arrested, he's executed in an alley. Or more recently, the megalomaniac Saddam Hussein, prosecuted and paraded on TV, you remember the footage, 
disheveled and distraught, brought to nothing. But of course, the greatest demonstration of this very thing was 2,000 years ago, when the principalities and powers put God's anointed one to death on a cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, when the enemies of God thought they had won only to have their powerless power exposed when he rose from the dead, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, as Paul says in Colossians 2.15. Church, this is how God works in the world. It's how he finally is redeeming the world. Though hidden from the eyes of unbelief, those who believe can clearly see in everything. God is there. Always working behind the scenes to move forward his purposes and fulfill his promises to his people. That came to a climax in Christ who by dying and rising has conquered sin and Satan. And who will one day come again to restore all things as he reigns over this world as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one can stop him. No dictator, no king, no government, no court, no military, no nation, no billionaire. All the powers of this godless world cannot alter in even the slightest his secret providence and his saving plans. It's all empty in the end. Just like we see in the story, just like we see in the first chapter of this book, when all the power of the Persian Empire and this pagan king is proved to be laughably impotent. Which would be such an encouragement to the Jews who were living under a similar godless reign when this book was written. And remains a great encouragement to Christians today living in similarly godless days. When God's people might fear the powers of this godless world, God is there. So don't be afraid. Don't cower at the powers that oppose us and oppose God and his purposes. Rather laugh at the impotence of this world and live by faith in almighty God and his hidden providence. We might not be able to see it, but God is there. He's right where you and I are at. And he is working and he will accomplish his purposes and plans. As the hymn says, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Let's pray. Lord, like your people in every age, we live in godless days. And it is easy for us to be overwhelmed by all that we see and experience. And it's easy for us to wonder, where are you? What are you doing? And we just thank you for this book of Esther that reminds us you are there. You've always been there. You always will be there. And you will be working out everything according to your perfect purposes and promises for your people. And so we do not need to be afraid. We are the last people in the world who should ever be afraid but rather, Lord, we can, with eyes of faith, know that you are working. We can see what seem like coincidences that are actually your providence in this world. And we can trust that you are working everything towards this great final purpose 
of restoring all things and ruling and reigning over this world in perfect righteousness and power. And so, Lord, may we, as we are encouraged to in this chapter, to not be afraid, to even laugh at the impotence of this world and to live by faith in you, our almighty God. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our King and Savior. Amen.